Welcome to Pacific Northwest Coffee and Conversation, a bi-weekly podcast where we speak with leaders in the Pacific Northwest fighting hate and advancing social justice. I'm Kendall Kosai, Director of Policy for the ADL Western Division. Since the U.S. hastily withdrew from Afghanistan last year, more than 120,000 Afghans have been evacuated from the country because of their affiliation to the U.S. during a two-decade-long war. For many Vietnamese Americans, they saw their own experiences reflected and repeated again. This week, I have the opportunity to speak with Uyen Nguyen, a co-founder of Viets for Afghans, a local volunteer-driven organization dedicated towards supporting Afghan refugees through the resettlement process. Let's get started. So first of all, thank you so much for, for joining me. I'm really excited to have this conversation today and the great work you're doing here. You know, I'd love to start off this conversation by learning a little bit more about yourself and who you are and, you know, some of the work that you've been engaged in. in the world. Yes, uh, so my name is Uyen Nguyen and I am an entrepreneur and a activist in the Seattle area. I am also a refugee. I uh, left Vietnam when I was 10 years old, and I lived in the Filipino uh, refugee camp for about a year and a half before I came to the United States. I ended up starting Be It For Afghan because actually, you know, <laughs> during that time, I didn't give much thought of it. I just knew, you know, how certain things in life when you just knew you had to do something and you're just propelled to do it without actually thinking about, am I going to even have the bandwidth to do this? It was for me, it was not an option not to do something. So I just started working on it. So anyhow, yeah. I'm very really happy to be here and thank you for giving me the, the time. No, absolutely. And so I know you alluded to it a little bit ago where you're the one of the founders of the VS for Afghans. Can you talk about that organization and why you helped found it? Uh, yes, it was on August 16th when I was uh, seeing various uh, news feed regarding, you know, the evacuation of Afghanistan and for me, it just became so clear, the images of just the downstream consequences for this group of people, because the Vietnamese folks went through very, very similar thing. And a couple of things that came to my, my mind was like, one, they're going to need advocates because, you know, once you become a refugee, even if you're one of the most vocal person before, you don't have the, the avenue to speak up and be able to call attention to this issue. And since we were former refugee, I thought it was our obligation to do so. And then also, you know, there are a lot and a lot of downstream consequences for refugees that most of the people in the public do not know about. You see the evacuation images, but you don't see the trauma that these families would have to endure, like the suffering, the unnecessary suffering, the feeling of just being completely lost, completely stripped away from your identity, the unnecessary death and just worry and just all these other things. You know, you can be a doctor back home and you come here and your, your degree doesn't doesn't mean anything, you know, and you can have 
10 houses back home. But when you're here, you're subdued to becoming a janitor or whatever is necessary to support your family. So we wanted to bring attention to all of that to hopefully alleviate some of the suffering that are being put upon the, the Afghan people. And so I just uh, grab my phone and I just text uh, my group of friends and I say, we have to do something. You know, it just is uh, just so unnecessary and so many layers of suffering. And if there's something that we can do to just at least be part of uh, the solution, even if it's small, we just need to do it. And that's how our group started uh, forming. And so our goal is to be the best ally that we could to the Afghan community. And I don't use the word refugee sometimes, mainly because only the ones that made it here or evacuated out are more like the refugees, but there are still a bunch of folks who are stuck back home, back in Afghanistan, that are dealing with the consequences of being left behind. And so we are looking at the broader aspect of this, you know, trying to help the folks who are here, but also continuing to call attention to the people that are left behind or the people that have left Afghanistan but are stuck in in a stateless situation, whether it's in Pakistan or, or elsewhere, and trying to help them as much as we could. So one of the things that we often don't think about is what are some of the challenges that refugees have in terms of the resettlement process here in the United States? What are some of the the cultural barriers, the language barriers? What are are some things that are a challenge for refugees in being resettled here into the United States? Yeah, so gosh, there are so many things that I feel like I might not be able to provide them all in a efficient manner. But so one, you know, when you're evacuated, this is not an orderly process, right? This is like a hectic process. This is one of these things where you might be working close to the embassy or wherever the airlift, you know, part is. Your family might be stuck at home, you know. And so one, you have left your family behind or you have brought some of your family, but you forgot all your documentation, you know, and so you come here and one of the first thing they need is your paperwork (laughs) and you realize you just don't have any of your paperwork, you know, or you get into the military base and you misunderstand something and then they, before you know it, they actually capture your name incorrectly. And now it becomes like this completely incredible headache for you to prove yourself to the government that you actually exists as a person that you're actually legit, you know? And so, and we have seen all of these as true case scenario with all the family that we're helping. And then so you're languishing in this military basis for four or five months by now, because, you know, the folks that we are helping, they've been there in these camps since August. And so you just feel helpless. During this meantime, you're hearing from family back home that they're being captured, they're being threatened by the Taliban and all of that. You're going through a loss of identity. You have never felt so weak and so helpless in your life, you know? And it just completely, just in some way devoid of hope. And so that's another challenge. And then again, the military bases are not exactly great for recovering from any sort of PTSD, right? It actually would trigger even more PTSD. So the longer they're languishing in these military bases, the worse it becomes. And so now you finally get an option, let's say, to resettle to Seattle with a group like us to help. Again, 
some of the documentation and paperwork process is like completely unnecessary. We have to apply to make sure that these refugees get the proper documentation to stay here, you know, and apply for asylum. And after they get the proper documentation, finally can go and get driving tests, can get, you know, medical care. I actually have a family where they both need surgery. Both the parents need surgery, but we just kept waiting and waiting for medical benefits to kick in. And, you know, and the father was hurt because he was helping the U.S. government. He was hurt by the Taliban, you know? So these are not things that the, the refugee put themselves through, if you will. You know, these are the things that we put them at risk and injure, and we just were not stepping up to help them in a timely manner. Anyhow, that gets protected. And then housing situation. Housing is really, really difficult. So what happens is that, you know, we would have to most of the time put these family up for housing and temporary housing. And then later, when once we find permanent housing for them, we would have to move them again. And where that becomes difficult is that, you know, the children's school is tied more to the permanent housing, right? Where they're going to be living for a longer period of time. And so, again, we just keep prolonging this process where it induces more suffering and a more uncertainty when it's not really necessary at all. Oh, and, and a couple more. So many of the folks that work for us or work alongside the U.S. government, they are educated. They're very much independent individuals, right? Wanted to support themselves. And whether they were, they had high ranking job or low ranking job or whatever it is, their identity from that previous job is completely stripped. So now instead of doing those sort of like what is considered by society to be noteworthy kind of job, they're induced to working as janitor. They're working as I mean, not even line cook because they, they can't even get the certification for that. You need to, to have some language skill to be able to do that, right? And so it's just like when you were so stripped of so many things in your life, that's what the Afghan re refugees are going through. That's what any refugee has to go through. And it's very similar to that feeling that we have been going through because of the pandemic, right? You, you don't know when you're going to see some of your loved ones again. You don't know what your future will be like. You don't know when you get to leave the house again, you know, during the lockdown, all of those, right? And then some people lost their job because of the pandemic, all of that. But you take that and you multiply that by 100. That's essentially what the refugee community have to go through. And so it's so heartbreaking. And that's why we're so motivated to make sure that we help break down any of those barriers that we can to make life a little bit easier for them. Because when people are in such hopeless situation, it, it just, I don't, it's so heartbreaking for me to see. Absolutely. Yeah. The, I mean, people don't often think about those very simple things that we take for granted in our everyday lives the, and the, the process and the, the bureaucracy that, that these folks have to go through and, and during a very traumatic time in their lives as well. So uh, thanks for, thank you for sharing that. The, the work that you do is quite amazing. And it's amazing that just as a volunteer led organization, you just picked up the phone and you, you called some friends and you got them together and you, you sprung into action. I think what, what's really interesting to me are the parallels, right? Between what you mentioned before, between the, the, the Vietnamese American community, you know, Vietnamese refugees and Afghan refugees, right? That, you know, comparison from what happened several decades ago to what's happening today. So what has that kind of experience, at least for you as, uh, you know, an individual 
who has experienced the kind of the same things in a, in a sense. What is that like seeing the, the similarities? It's heartbreaking to see uh, to see the similarities because so much of the similarities did not need to happen. Right. The evacuation. Well, one, you know, is uh, whether we should have been in the country in the first place and so on. But if we we say that we should have been in the country in the first place, we vouch to the Afghan uh, people that we're going to be there to help them, uh, you know, gain some progress and so on. However, it didn't turn out that way because once we left, I uh, most would agree that the situation we left them in and how it is right now is even worse than when we started. So it's a lot of unnecessary work, a lot of unnecessary suffering. And on top of it, a lot of things are chaotic, you know, like when the evacuation was chaotic, the resettlement process has been chaotic. You know, we could have learned some of the things that we learned from the Vietnam period to actually make this process a lot smoother, you know, including just providing benefits or the right to stay here permanently to all those we evacuated. But no, we don't do that. We provide a very short-term benefit. Actually, at the beginning, because many were on humanitarian parole status, didn't even have benefits, you know? And so creating this extra hurdle and these now these extra hurdle to even prove that they can actually stay here by applying for asylum status. And But where are they going to go? We were the one that evacuated them, right? And we learned all this. We made the same mistake in Vietnam during the Vietnam resettlement period, and we're doing exactly the same thing now. And on top of it, we are taking a backseat and waiting for consequences to happen to our allies that we left behind. And so a lot of those folks that are left back there are going to go through similar things that, you know, my grandfather went through or my father went through, which is like some form of re-education camp, some sort of punishment. My grandfather ended up dying in prison because of that. So for us, we need to start thinking about all the lessons that we were taught and a very painful lesson, to be honest. And we, we need to do that as soon as possible to alleviate some of the suffering that the Afghan uh, folks are going through and will be going through. So the parallel to me is uncanny, but frankly, I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's necessary whatsoever. And this is not a pride thing that the Afghan journey has been so similar to the Vietnamese journey. It, it shouldn't be. We, we should actually learn something, especially since this was not that long ago. I mean, this was like 46 years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. The people who enacted some of the policy or just even went through the similar suffering after the Vietnam resettlement, many are still alive. You know, many of those folks can actually spread the lesson and advocate for things to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Even our own president was alive during that period. So, so this is not like back in 200 years of history that you have to dig up the history book for. There are many folks that are, are still present that can actually enact effective changes. Yeah, I mean, they, they often say that History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And unfortunately, it's rhyming again today. Um, and it's clear that we have not learned some of those lessons that that you have that you're talking about. 
what also is really inspiring about the group that you have found is the navigating the resettlement process here in the United States. You know, some of the things that you've been able to do in terms of um, bringing families to here in, into the Seattle region. And so can you talk a little bit about what's that like? What are kind of the things that a lot of these Afghan refugees need to, to start a new life here in a, in a totally different culture and country? One of the programs that we have is called the Sponsor Circle Program. Is essentially a program that uh, where we work with an organization called Community Sponsorship Hub, and they're the one that run it at more of the federal level, working alongside the state department. And so it's a pilot program that allows private citizens to form a circle of five or more people and the private citizen group essentially can sponsor a family, an Afghan family that are still stuck in the military bases and resettle them to any place around the country. Since we're based in Seattle, our focus is more about forming the circle in the Seattle area. You know, interesting enough, well, during that time, it wasn't called sponsored circle, but it was really private citizen that actually helped the Vietnamese people when we first got evacuated to the United States or to various bases. And because during that time, resettlement agency did not exist. Resettlement agency didn't exist until 1980. So in some way, we're coming full circle through the process to help refugees. So anyhow, we set up these sponsor circles, but many of us were beneficiary of the circle before. We never ran any of these circle or, you know, private group before. So everything was really, really new to us. But I'm a big believer in that when you're committed to doing something, you can actually figure it out. So that's really all we did was that we made a commitment that we're going to do this and we're actually just going to do whatever it takes to figure it out. So we started learning about all the obligations we need to do. You know, it's a three month commitment. We need to find housing. We need to ensure we sign the family up for benefits, medical benefits for school, help them with clothes, have them with finding jobs and ESL classes and all of that. And we figure that, you know, we all are intelligent people, so we can, we probably can figure it out. And then so we just start doing it. So turns out me and my group of friends were one of the first group in the United States to settle a group of refugee via the private sponsorship route, which is uh, via the sponsor circle. So once we started that, you know, we did another one to, again, continue to, uh, to learn. And then before you know it, now we have sponsored 38 people to Seattle area already. And we have application in for another family of nine. And then we have more applications that are being filed this week and next week. So we're making great progress. <laughs> That's amazing. And, it, you know, it's such a monumental task to kind of bring all these kind of different pieces together in terms of what, what folks might need in terms of being, you know, the resettlement pro, you know, process here in the United States. And so, you know, what, what kinds of folks have, have reached out to you and worked with you and really want to get involved? What, what does that kind of community response look like? Oh, yeah. So it's been really, really heartwarming for me to see that this project has been very non-political in the sense that we're getting folks who are helping from just all political spectrum. This is not like a democratic you know, thing or a Republican thing. 
So one, that's what we're seeing. Two, what we're seeing also is that the help is coming from uh, not only Vietnamese, Afghan, other ethnic groups and so on, and people of all ages. You know, one of our earliest volunteers, an 18-year-old Vietnamese young man. And then we have also, you know, a group of retirees helping us right now too. So it really vary in all spectrum also in terms of age group and, and also geography. We have people as far as Hawaii helping us and, you know, in New York and so on. But because of certain constraints, whether it's geographical constraint or let's say, you know, bandwidth constraint, people just help in different ways. And so the people who are the most active would be the ones that are in Seattle because they can do both, not only the online stuff and also donation, but they can actually go out there and help with welcome family and, and, you know, move furniture or whatever else. So it's still a Vietnamese-led effort, but we are having all sorts of different ethnic groups and different age group, people with different experience jumping in to be part of this, not only the circle, but also part of volunteer group. Yeah. So for for folks who are listening to this podcast, what are some ways that they can help uh, support your organization and some of the efforts that are happening? You mentioned, you know, obviously the the circle earlier, you you mentioned maybe moving to furniture. What, What kind of things are you looking for right now? Yeah, so uh, the answer vary day by day. Uh, for uh, right now, we are most in need of more uh, sponsor circle members to step up and to be part of the circle. And then the second part is the funding behind it too. So essentially to form a sponsor circle, what we need to show is that we need to show uh, $2,275 per refugee that we're helping to resettle. That covers their costs uh, in terms of housing costs, medical care, food, and whatever else for a three month period. So when we form these circle, we have to show that we have that kind of funding. We realize that not everybody have uh, the luxury to have that kind of money laying around. So essentially what we do is that we do fundraising so that when, let's say you want to be part of the circle and you're like, you know, I have the time, I have the heart, I really want to do this, but I just don't have the money to sponsor a family of five or even one person. Like, how can I be part of it? And we would tell you that, you know, it's fine. You, you can join and it will help with the fundraising. And then we'll get you to help part with part of fundraising later too but we try to unblock that part of the hurdle we also realize that not everyone has four other friends that they can pull in to actually form a circle of five so what we do is that we pull folks together you might be the one reaching out to me someone else might be another person reaching out to me and we're we introduce you to each other and we're like okay you guys have complementary skill set and also bandwidth I guess complementary bandwidth in the sense like if you're busy, someone else can pick up the slack for you and so on. And we put the team together. We put someone in the team that actually speak the language so they, they can communicate with the refugee family and so on. So that's also another hurdle that we try to unlock and to make it easier for people who want to, to help out. So those are the two biggest needs we, we have right now is that one, people to step up 
to people to donate. And then on an ad hoc basis, we also need help with such thing as moving furniture, moving these family to their uh, temporary home and then later to their permanent home and, and all of that. And then lastly, what we also need is that we need help on the side of Viet for Afghan because as we mentioned earlier, it's still an all volunteer run organization. Uh, most of us actually have full-time jobs. So I have a full-time job and I a lot of people think I'm the executive director for VFO Afghan. <laughs> I am is in some ways general manager, but you know, uh, this is also another 40 hours of, of my week too. So it, it adds to be a lot. So whatever people are willing to help with, we would love that, you know, anywhere from social media help to background in law, background in pretty much anything. I mean, we definitely can find a spot for you to help us. That's amazing. Uh, and so if, if folks want to learn more about your organization, what is the website that they should visit? Yes, it's Viet, V-I-E-T-S, for F-O-R, Afghans, A-F-G-H-A-N-S dot org. Awesome. Very nice. Obviously, the work that you're doing there in the, in the community is amazing. It's very direct and tangible. And so I, I just commend you so much for, for everything that you're doing in, in, you know, in a very difficult situation, in a very painful time in people's lives. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. You know, we, we like to end the art, you know, our interview with a, a final question that is, is more on the lighter side and, and on a positive note, because I think what you're doing inspires a lot of people. But for you, what, what actually gives you hope for the future? What, what makes you hopeful for w- what's happening in today's world? And, and how are you feeling about that? I think a couple of things. One is all the children that we have been able to help through this process. Uh, we, uh, we have... Uh, over 30 children under our group now, you know, that we have sponsored and to be able to realize that we really have changed the future, you know, that is incredibly heartwarming. Second aspect, a lot of Vietnamese people and also a lot of Afghan people, frankly, have never even thought about each other before, uh, including one family he, we helped. He actually had no idea that Vietnamese people were living in, in the United States, much alone be the people that helped sponsor his family. So we're bridging a group of people that, one, have not heard of each other, but two, haven't didn't really have opportunity to actually meet each other. And I would tell some people in my team that 10, 20 years down the road, I actually have high confidence that Seattle would have one of the strongest Afghan-Vietnamese relationship that exists anywhere in the world because of what we're doing. And a lot of that is just due to the effort of not only the Vietnamese side, but the Afghan side. The Afghan community have really stepped up to partner with us and also to to build this bridge in friendship. And then I think the last part that really uh, gave me hope going back to uh, your question earlier about who have step up to help. It's been like so heartwarming to see people from just all aspects of life stepping up, whether they are sending donation check or they are moving furniture for us or they step up to become a sponsor. It just is when there's darkness, there's light, you know, and that's really has been the big light at the end of the uh, this dark tunnel. So yeah, <laughs> I would say those are my top three. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I mean, th- those things inspire me as well. So 
I'm just, again, so appreciative of all your, the work that you're doing, especially during really difficult circumstances. I think that being able to start an organization like this that is impacting on such a you know fundamental level is, is amazing. So, so thank you for everything that you're doing in the community. And we hope that you, know, you can continue to get the support from the community that you, that you need to, to help make a difference. Uh, and so thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much, Kendall, for having me on. Absolutely.